afternoon, Purple family. Welcome to another episode of Shades of Purple, a Prince podcast. On this afternoon's episode, I will be reviewing Prince's fifth studio album, 1999. Now this album right here, y'all, is in my top three of Prince's catalog. In fact, it is my number three, with number two being Purple Rain and number one being the classic Sign of the Times. But before I fell in love with either Sign of the Times or Purple Rain, it was 1999 for me. And for Prince, 1999 will really be the beginning of his ascent into the mainstream music scene. Now, not to say that he was underground or anything like that, because by this time, he was getting significant buzz around the music industry, but his albums were not really selling in the way that either he or Warner Brothers really wanted. So 1999 was also a watershed moment for Prince because it's like, okay, you're on your fifth album. You got to make some shake at this point. Or you're going to be like a cult artist that when people look back at the 80s and be like, yeah, yeah, I remember Prince. He, he has some really nice songs on a few of those albums. You know, so neither he or Warner Brothers wanted that. So Prince really took his time with the 1999 album in a way that he did not do with his other earlier albums. And this was noted by some of the engineers that he worked with on 1999, such as Peggy McCurry, who was at Sunset Sound in L.A., there were a lot of tracks that were done and mixed there. And so she said they would do 14 to 16 hour shifts at a time. He was basically living in the studio and his engineers would have to work in shifts because, you know, at some point they had to go home and, you know, eat and, you know, get some rest. And a lot of them would comment and say that they could really only take cat naps or, you know, power naps, really short naps because Prince would just stay on it and on it and go for hours and hours and hours. So before we get into the tracks on the album, let me give you the statistics as always from theprincefault.com. So 1999 was released on October 27th, 1982. Now, a lot of you guys noticed that a lot of Prince's earlier albums were all released in October. Uh, Controversy, Dirty Mind, Prince, they all came out in October. So I don't know if there's if there's a connection to anything with that, but it's just something that I noticed. So um, for those that are listening, if y'all can figure out why that is, just comment in the Facebook page, I guess. Uh, but it's, it's probably nothing. So, But anyway, just I guess a coincidence maybe. But moving on, so it was released on October 27th, 1982. Album sessions took place from early 1982 to August of 1982 at Princess Cowboy Trail Home Studio and later at Sunset Sound in Hollywood, California. International Lover is believed to be the first track recorded for the album in mid-January 1982. Recording dates for All the Critics Love You in New York are not known, but it was recorded in early 1982. Let's Pretend We're Married was recorded in late March of 1982. DMSR followed in mid-April 1982. Free and Something in the Water Does Not Compute were recorded in late April 1982, while Automatic and Delirious were recorded in early May of 1982, and Little Red Corvette on the 20th of May 1982. Lady Cab Driver followed in early July 1982, while 1999 was recorded on the 7th of August 1982. So 1999, the song, is thought to have not been included on any early configuration of the album, which was likely given another name at the time. But Prince's management suggested he add an overarching thematic song to the album, and he wrote the song in response. No other details of the early configurations are known. So the album was largely a solo recording project by Prince, 
although various band members appeared in small roles, especially on 1999 and DMSR. The album produced five commercially released singles, 1999, which preceded the album, Little Red Corvette, Delirious, Automatic, available in Australia only, and Let's Pretend We're Married, and in addition, DMSR was available on a promotional single following the, re the release of Little Red Corvette. So Prince, she, he also toured extensively in the U.S. to support the album on the 1999 tour, and it largely focused on the album. The tour featured the time and banning six, so it was also known as the Triple Threat Tour. That's not on here, but I do remember reading that that's what that tour was called. Um, so the album reached number nine on the U.S. Uh, Billboard Top LP and Tapes chart and number four on the Billboard Black LPs uh, chart. 1999 has been certified four times platinum by the RIAA. So that means four million copies have been uh, shipped in the US. So 1999 would be Prince's first album to reach the top 10 on the pop chart. So that finally put him in the big leagues, so to speak. So he, he can now compete with artists like Michael Jackson, who had albums whose singles were going straight to the top spot on the charts. This transition was illustrated by the fact that on December 16th, 1982, the music video for the single 1999 will premiere on MTV. Now, this is important because Prince was able to do this before any of Michael Jackson's videos were aired on MTV. The video for Billie Jean, which was the first single off of Thriller, did not premiere on MTV until March 10th, 1983. So it was Prince who really broke the racial barrier on MTV and not MJ. MJ was recognized as the first black artist on MTV because the Billie Jean video would be the first to be in heavy rotation by a black artist. And so a lot of people don't know that Prince was on MTV before Michael Jackson. But just like my purple sister Tony said on the Facebook page when I uh, made a post about this, she commented that a lot of people didn't know that Prince, you know, w uh, was black. You know, they assumed that he was biracial and his music was much more in line with the punk and rock oriented stuff that they were already playing on MTV. So he wasn't playing the type of music that other black artists were playing. So that kind of, you know, put Prince he kind of fit the mold that MTV was looking for as far as sound and look. But just like Claudette Coven, a lot of people don't know who Claudette Coven is, uh, but a few people know that she was actually the first woman to get arrested for refusing to give up her seat on a bus. She was 15 years old and she uh, actually refused to get off the, uh, the bus. I guess, you know, a white person wanted a seat and she was like, no. And she was arrested. And this happened nine months before the Rosa Parks demonstration. The only difference is she fought and cussed the police out. And uh, that was very bold for her to do back then because they could have easily, like, you know, really hurt her really bad, if not, you know, killed killed her. Uh, but she did that. And so um, when the NAACP found out about Claudette Coven, you know, they had been wanting to do a demonstration on the bus you know, for a while, but they was like, oh yeah, we, we, we can't use that because she got violent with the police and they wanted to do a non-violent demonstration. So they approached Rosa Parks, who was the secretary of the Montgomery chapter of the NAACP to do the demonstration on the bus. So a lot of people don't know that that was actually planned by Rosa Parks. It wasn't something that she just spontaneously did. Uh, like I said, she was the secretary of the NAACP 
P chapter in Montgomery. So just like with MJ, he had the backing of his record label at the time, Columbia, who threatened to pull all their artists off from MTV if they did not air Michael Jackson's video. So I know to some, they, they probably might not be the best comparison of the situation, but that's basically how it was in my mind. And think about it. You know that MJ had all these top-notch writers and producers working to make Thriller the powerhouse that it will become. And that's not to say that MJ did not do a lot of the album himself because I know that he did write Billie Jean and some of the other songs on Thriller. But my point is he had a team backing him. Whereas Prince mostly relied on himself. Yes, he had engineers and a band, but they followed his directions. But more on Prince and uh, MJ on the first episode of season two of the podcast, which is coming out in just a couple of weeks. So stay tuned for that. But yeah, so Prince was almost like Claudette Coven. She kind of kind of went under the radar or went really unnoticed. And uh, Rosa Parks was more like MJ. You know, they had the backing of, she had the backing of the NAACP. He had the backing of Columbia. So they really had people, hold on, y'all gotta take a drink. They had people that were supportive and helping them. And like I said, I'm not trying to say that Prince and Claudette Coven are like, you know, well, they are pioneers. That is what I'm trying to say. But they were pioneers in the fact that, you know, they went, they were unnoticed pioneers is basically what I'm trying to say. So there's that. So moving on, let's go back to talking about the album tracks for the first song, 1999. As we learned earlier, it was the last song added to the album and it would become the title song for the album. So according to Prince in his uh, Larry King live interview he did in the year 1999, he said he got the idea of the song from a documentary on Nostradamus, which if you don't know who Nostradamus is, he was this French astrologer, excuse me, who wrote this book where he envisioned the future. So in the year 1999, he makes all these dire claims None of which I think actually happened, but back in 1982, the year 1999 seemed really far away, but yet close enough to where, you know, the thinking was that 1999 could be the end of the world. So Prince takes on um, a different stance than what he did in the song, uh, Ronnie Talks Russia in uh, Controversy. The difference being in that instead of trying to get the president of the United States to open up diplomatic talks, to prevent our destruction, he says in 1999, there is no reason to run from that same destruction because there's no need for it. If you're going, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. That's not much. I mean, nobody can do anything about that. So instead of just worrying about that, we're just going to party before we're out of time. So basically let's party till we drop, but not from exhaustion, but from death. So Prince is saying, let's just enjoy life while we're here because of the type of world we live in tomorrow is never promised. So despite 1999 appearing on the surface to be this pop dance song, it's actually more like a dark or black satire and that it is a very pessimistic vibe, but you don't get that because the song sounds so poppy and danceable. The three-part harmony done by Jill Jones, Lisa Coleman, Des Dickerson, and Prince was like a Sly and the Family Stone song, according to Prince, which they had first tried to sing it all together, but it didn't really sound right, so Prince decided to do the three-part harmony. And as we know, the rest was history. Before we go on to talk about the next track on the album, I wanted to briefly talk about an instrument that really is the star 
of this album. And that's the Lynn LM1 drum machine. Now Prince had used it before on songs like Private Joy on the Controversy album, but on 1999, it really is just about every song. Uh, Prince was able to program it in such a way that it is it's influences on just about every song all over the album. You hear it on songs like Let's Pretend We're Married, Something in the Water Does Not Compute, Automatic. The Lim LM1 works as a complement to this futuristic theme that Prince created for 1999. So moving on, Little Red Corvette is the next track on the album and probably the most celebrated and well-known track on the album. It would be the most significant in a number of ways. It was Prince's first top 10 single on the pop charts. And it was one of the first songs of the decade to make a reference to safe sex practices with the line Trojans and some of them use, talking about the Trojan brand condoms. The song itself has two very interesting origin stories. The first one is about the Corvette itself, which according to Revolution keyboardist Lisa Coleman, it was inspired by her car, which was a pink and white 1964 Mercury Monteclair. Lisa said that Prince would use her car to pick up dates and probably do a little more than that since she said she found hair in the back seat. So she said she imagined they were making out or doing whatever in the back seat. And um, she said they probably had a wonderful moment of afterglow, which was when he got the seed for this idea. So that's possible, right? Interesting possibility. Well, the second origin story involves the possible muse for the song a woman named Mei Ling Stonepool. She met Prince in 1976 at a hotel party when she was 16. Then three years later, when she was 18, going on 19, she ran into him again at a club in Minneapolis called The Fox Trap in 1979. Prince asked her for her number, and after they started, quote-unquote, dating, uh, but uh, as she told Michael Dean, so she had an interview with Michael Dean on the podcast on Prince on Podcast Juice, and just like in the song, she said she was moving too fast with Prince. They were just kicking it, which really meant that they were just friends with benefits and they were not in a serious relationship. But Prince got jealous after seeing her with a local boxer after a boxing match. She had a picture of this boxer as well as some other men she knew and dated at her house. So the line, when I saw all the jockeys that were there before me, Prince was allegedly talking about all these other men that Mei Ling had pictures of in her house. She would go on to say in the interview that she learned in 1985 from one of their mutual friends that, that she would not name, that the song was about her. So she said at first that um, when she learned that she got angry and upset because she felt like the song made her out to be this hoe that was too fast and just out just doing whatever with whomever. And she said that wasn't the case. She admitted to being fast though, like a lot of young women are when they're that young, but she did not think that this was a, a bad thing. But years later, she recalled going to go see Prince in concert. And then she also uh, went to Paisley Park and um, watched him perform there. And she was finally able to talk to him after being away from him from all those years. So she grew to have a better appreciation for the song later because she came to understand that it had other meanings other than just talking about their sex life. <laughs> And that's where she said she was able to, you know, that's when she was able to make her peace with it. Uh, Mei Ling was supposed to be putting out a book about her time with Prince, but I looked for it all online and I couldn't find it. And I, I guess she has yet to put it out, but she does um, definitely have a Facebook page. So uh, definitely check that out when you get a chance. So 
Moving on to the next track, Delirious. Um, that's another, basically another rockabilly song that kind of reminds me uh, about, of an Elvis song. It kind of sounds like an Elvis song to me anyway. The comedian Eddie Murphy uh, would name his 1983 stand-up mo- uh, movie Delirious after this song because he admired Prince so much. And at the Purple Rain movie premiere, he called himself a Prince groupie. Okay. <laughs> Delirious is a typical love song. It has a funky little beat with a, you know, cute little baby cooing in the background. So it's a cute song. So the next song, uh, Let's Pretend We're Married, is probably low-key my favorite song on the album. When I first heard it, I played it out, and I love the video even more. Prince has his most iconic look with the purple trench coat and the white blouse that would spawn thousands, if not millions, of Halloween costumes. The only thing missing in his, is probably his white cloud guitar. So when most people think of Prince, they think of this particular aesthetic. What most people don't think about, however, is that Prince actually wore more purple and in this particular look more than he did when he did Purple Rain. So this song is another sleeper hit, in my opinion, with the Lim LM1 drum machine controlling the beat. It's also another one of his most sexually explicit songs. As he says at the end of the song, I want to fuck you so bad it hurts. It hurts. I want to, 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 I want to fuck you. <laughs> I can't even do this without laughing. Uh, yeah, I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to fuck you. <laughs> And then he says, look here, Marsha. I don't know who Marsha is. Look here, Marsha. I'm not saying this just to be nasty, but you are saying it to be nasty. I sincerely want to fuck the taste out of your mouth. Can you relate? (laughs) Yes, your prince. Yeah, we can relate. (laughs) As we were found out, uh, Prince wasn't done yet uh, with the sexually explicit content on this album. So just stay tuned. In fact... He was just getting started. So moving on to the next song, another pop song hit, DMSR or Dance, Music, Sex, Romance. Now this song is in the same vein as 1999 and that it's a pop dance song that will really make you want to get on the dance floor and just start doing the electric slide, or at least that's what it does for me. <laughs> I love Prince's signature throughout the song. His first started, you know, he first started doing that and uh, sexuality off of the Controversy album, but he does it constantly throughout this song. This song, I don't know how well I'm doing that, so, you know, whatever. (laughs) So this song is a call and response bop that you can't help but just nod your head to. It was featured in the movie Risky Risky Business with Tom Cruise. I've never seen it, but I'm assuming it was played during a party scene or something like that because... Uh, that would be the only way to really play it because it's the type of song that when you play, you got to get out on the dance floor and start grooving. So, okay. So the next song on the album is Automatic. This is another song where I also really like the accompanying music video. I couldn't help but notice how tiny Prince was. I mean, his waist has got to be like a 26 or 28. I always joke and say he's the same size as my 19 year old daughter which is so crazy to me i also like the uh drum machine in this song as well and the whole torture scene that they did with prince and jill jones and lisa coleman i'm surprised that prince let uh, lisa smoke like that because she had that cigarette in her hand i'm just like oh my god what if she burns him you know it was i love the um the dark blue in the video 
it gave it like this uh, really proper dark mood. And uh, Prince would use the same female computer voice on uh, the Purple Rain album on the song Computer Blue. You know, remember, poor lonely computer. So an automatic, you know, she said, it's time to torture you now. And I'm just like, and then they took out a belt and started hitting him with it. I'm like, okay. So the next track, uh, Something in the Water Does Not Compute. This to me is the most 80 sounding song on the album. In between this song and Automatic, I don't know which of the synth riffs sounds more 80-ish, but probably both of them. But the drum machine in this song uh, especially also shines through in, in Something in the Water. I mean, the drum machine, the way he uh, creatively was able to cre- creatively put that beat in like that, uh, it was really catchy and very memorable. And it sounds futuristic, like you're on a spaceship. Prince's incredible scream in this song also stands out. So if you're ever listening to the song with headphones or earbuds, his scream is so loud that you'll have to take your earbuds out. Like, his screams, like, he screams at the end of Let's Pretend We're Married too, and that's pretty loud, but it's really loud on uh, something, in the, something in the Water. And he also screams uh, in uh, Do Me Baby on Controversy, but he really goes out. I mean, all out, but they're like, Rah! I mean, I can't even do it. I sound like a, you know, <laughs> a cat or something. But it's crazy. Um, and I and I can't see how he can scream like that. So, I mean, it's so incredible. Of course, it's rock and roll, as Prince would say. And I would put Prince's screams up against any other rock star screams any day. Okay? It's awesome. The next song is Free, which to me is probably the weakest song on the album. It's a patriotic song that expresses the fact that people should be free to live their lives how they choose free to change your mind so it's a good message but i don't think he uh i think that he would do a better version of this with the patriotic song america on around the world in a day so to me it just seemed like he was um to me free is a good song but it just I'm, it just didn't you know stick with me it was just so so to me but i do like the message so moving on next up is lady cab driver I talked a little bit about this song on the last episode when discussing Prince's uh, girlfriend, uh, Jill Jones, and how she achieved her orgasmic performance with the aid of a vibrator. So on the surface, it would seem that Lady Cab Driver is about sex, but if you really look at the lyrics, he's talking about society and how society is the one fucking us. By some people, uh, the Lady Cab Driver is you know, having to deal with all of these issues and it's because of society. So these are the lyrics as him and the lady cab driver are getting it in. He says, this is for the cab you have to drive for no money at all. This is for why I was born, why I wasn't born like my brother, handsome and tall. And like I said, I think in my first episode, he's actually talking about his brother, Dwayne. This is for politicians who are bored and believe in war. This, yeah, that's for me. That's who that one's for. This is for discrimination and an egotist who thinks supreme. And this is for whoever taught you how to kiss in designer jeans. And then he said, I know he makes like a little run. <laughs> that's for, that's for, for where you have to live. This one's for the rich. Not all of them just agree. The ones that don't know how to get. This one's for Yosemite Sam and the tourists at Disneyland. What they do? <laughs> and this one, oh yeah, that's the one. That's for the creator of man. 
This is for the sun, the moon, the stars, the tourists at Disneyland. This is for the ocean, the sea, the shore. This is for, and that's for, and that's for who that's for. This is for women, so beautifully complex. This one's for love without sex. This is for the wind that blows no matter how fast or slow, not knowing where I'm going. This galaxy's better not having a place to go. And now I know, I know. So you can clearly see in the lyrics, he's talking about society's ills and how the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And he also, once again, he's mixing the sexual with the spiritual content. When he says this, this is for the creator of man. I'm thinking he's referring to God, I assume. I can only imagine <laughs> how Warner Brothers executives responded to this song. If I could have been a fly in the room back in 1982, just to see the look on their faces, I'm sure they were just like, okay, so we can't put this on radio for sure. <laughs> okay, so the last two tracks I'm actually going to discuss together. So All the Critics Love You in New York is another song about doing what you want because you can and the critics in New York won't judge you because New York is seen as this, uh, is the trendiest city in the in the country other than maybe LA. So people in New York tend to be more liberal, more hip, more into alternative ways of looking and doing things. But what really surprised me most about this song is that P says my birthday in it. My birthday is November 4th. And he says in their fourth day of November, we need a purple hot. So you can only imagine how shocked I was to hear that. So uh, November 4th is not only my birthday, but in 1984, November 4th was the first day of the Purple Rain tour. So I, I know that's not connected though. So I'm, I'm really curious about uh, where did this come from? You know, because obviously this song came out before Purple Rain. So I guess it's a mystery, but I personally love it because it connects me to Prince. So finally, the last track on the album, International Lover, was first recorded to go on the Time's second album, What Time Is It, with Morris Day's vocals. But Prince didn't like it, so he took it back and he put it on this album. I think International Lover is another one of those sexually explicit songs that intentionally uses a lot of euphemisms for sex, and it makes it kind of funny toward the end because he has a spoken part where he says, if for any reason there is a loss in cabin pressure... I will automatically drop down to apply more to activate the flow of excitement, extinguish all clothing materials, and pull my body close to yours. Place my lips over your mouth and kiss. Kiss normally. <laughs> I just thought that was funny. In the event of overexcitement, your seat cushion may be used as a flotation device. <laughs> he also says in a verse right before this, that he will buy his lover diamonds and pearls. So a very early reference to an album he would do by that same name in the 90s. His vocal performance in the song is wonderful. Prince had one of the best falsettos in the game. International Lover got Prince a 1984 Grammy nomination for Best R&B Male Vocal. It did win, uh, but he was nominated. I think that was the first time he was nominated for a Grammy. So 1999 was such a great album. It was a masterpiece in my opinion, and it would mark the beginning of Prince's rise to superstardom in the mainstream world of music. And then came the rain. So thank you for listening to Shades of Purple. We'll be back next week with a special interview with the Prince fan to wrap up season one. 
Until then, peace and be wild, and may you live to see the dawn. Bye.